This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions and where we try to have compassionate and compelling conversations about challenging subjects. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and as always, I have to thank the patrons who make this show possible. The patrons who have signed up over the past 30 days are Chris, Chris C. We have two Chris's, back-to-back Chris's, Stuart, Ian, Jpeth, Mick, Tobias, Jonathan, and Meredith. Thank you so much. And for anyone listening who wants to join their number, go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long for just a dollar a month. I am a very... Uh, I I am very cheap. You can buy me for just $1. You get extra content every single week. My House of Heretics podcast with the former Salvation Army officer turned Christian heretic, Timothy McPherson. We talk about current events. We talk about the news, theology, religion, philosophy, whatever is going on in the world. We talk about it. From our slightly divergent perspectives, we have a lot of overlap, and I am a minister of Satan. He is a former officer in the Salvation Army. So our slightly divergent but coalescing perspectives, and it is always a good time. It's also a live show every Friday morning, so patrons can hang out with us in the chat, and uh, it's always a good time. Also, If you have not already, please become a subscriber to my newsletter where I try to cover uh, interesting topics related to things like meditation, religion, spirituality, bridging ideological divides in our incredibly divided country right now. So if that's the kind of thing that's interesting to you, please sign up for my newsletter. There is a link in the show notes. Finally, if you haven't already, go to my Discord server. It's a fantastic community. There's new conversation there happening every single day. The vast majority of the conversation about my work takes place on the Discord server. So if you love what you hear and want more of it and want to engage in a conversation about the topics that I cover, go to the Discord server. There is a large community there. It's diverse. It's intellectually diverse. It is a fun group of people, and everyone is welcome, as long as you're not an asshole. All right. With all of that out of the way, I am delighted to welcome John Ward to the show. John, how are you? Hi, I'm good, Stephen. Thank you for asking, and uh, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Uh, Also, happy 420. You're a good Christian, so I won't ask you if you partake, but we're recording this on 420. You're also wearing the most fabulous tie-dye shirt ever. Um, So tell us some about who you are and what you do. Sure, yeah. This shirt is uh, originally from the great state of Maine, and uh, I put it on not realizing what day it was, but it is certainly appropriate. Um, So I have been a political reporter for the last 20 plus years. And I guess I should say I've been a reporter for 20 years because I didn't start covering politics exclusively until, I don't know, um, the late 2000s. And I've worked for several different news organizations uh, from the right to the left to uh, more of the middle, you know, I think Yahoo News, there, our audience is uh, is very much in between the coasts. And um, I think our score on some of the ideological websites that do those kinds of rankings does put us center left, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly. But I've worked for the Washington Times newspaper in D.C. That was my first uh, journalism job, uh, which was to the right. I worked for the Daily Caller, which uh, Tucker Carlson started back in 2009. Um, I helped launch that uh, website. 
and I worked directly after that for the Huffington Post. And I've had maybe one or two other uh, stops along the way, shorter ones, but those are the main places I've worked uh, over the last 20 years. And for the last decade or so, I've been doing mostly national politics and campaigns, although over the last several years, um, I've focused a lot more on trying to do solutions-oriented journalism that thinks about our political dysfunction and gridlock from a a perspective of trying to understand what are the drivers of it, the systemic causes of it, and how we can try to find a better way uh, in our politics. Yeah. So that's the kind of work that really resonates with me, that really matters to me. Um, in part mm. because I am myself a minority. I'm a religious minority. I'm a sexual mm. minority. I'm gay. And so it really matters yep. to me about not othering other people who might even be our political enemies and humanizing them. Mm. And I know that people listening often have a knee-jerk negative reaction to the word humanize because that sometimes there mm. it, it rhymes emotionally with agree, <laughs> agree with them, agree with people who are different mm. from you. It isn't that at all. Mm. It is seeing mm. their fundamental humanity and having that be the starting point. So you have a fantastic yeah. new book out called Testimony Inside the Evangelical Movement That Failed a Generation. I'm currently reading it. It is wonderful. Your writing is very clear and direct, which I appreciate. Tell us some about your childhood growing up in the evangelical world like you were you were at the very center of the beating heart of evangelicalism and i actually really really relate to what to to your story like there are so many points in your book where i'm like oh my god i i feel that on a visceral level yeah so i will i will get to that sort of childhood portrait in a moment but i just wanted to respond to something you said just now about how you're trying to not demonize others who think like you, even though you're a minority or maybe as a minority. And that just brings to mind something that your audience might be, you know, it might come up a lot on the show, I don't know. But one of the major weaknesses, I think, of conservative, largely white evangelicalism is that it has no uh, muscle memory or really any kind of experience of being a minority. And I think that shapes a lot of its political engagement to its to its its own detriment and to the detriment of the rest of us. Mm. Um, and you know, I think when you look at other groups, you know, in in American life and culture and politics, uh, if there is a significant experience of being a minority, either in the past or uh, up to the current moment, you see usually a very different sort of political engagement. One that is to your example, very mindful of what happens if minorities are are discriminated against. And uh, because evangelicals don't have that memory, they don't, they don't have or that experience, they don't have the tendency to think, what if the shoe was on the other foot? They, they have a lack of maybe imagination of that. Uh, Jonathan Roush is somebody who I think modeled that former, quite admirably. Former guest. He's been on the podcast multiple yeah. times. He's one of my favorite people and I love him. Oh, that's so wonderful to hear. Jonathan has become, I would say, a pretty good friend over the last several years and just such an extraordinary human. 
and I'm very grateful for for him and and for all that he's done. So my um, my upbringing, as you said, was pretty much in the center of of evangelicalism. My parents uh, became born again Christians in the '70s as part of the Jesus movement. This was right outside of Washington D.C. in the Maryland suburbs, which is where I grew up. And my parents started a church in the 70s, non-denominational, really were pretty adamant and, I don't know, intentional about turning their back on history and tradition, certainly wanted nothing to do with the mainline denominations or, you know, Catholicism was heresy, I think, for for many of them. Um, and, And so I was born the same year we started the church in 1977. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I grew up going to church multiple times a week, went to an elementary school that was run by the church and, uh, it was a very closed environment and we kept ourselves separate. We were very influenced by the left behind dispensationalist, uh, thinking that, you know, you see from the Hal Lindsey book, uh, and from the left behind series. Um, so that, that formed us to be. Uh, withdrawn and isolationist in, in how we kept ourselves separate from others. And it, so it was a small world, even Definitely. though we were right outside DC. Right. Yeah. No, I, I remember. So I went to a Christian high school, evangelical Christian high school. I was kind of, it's hard to describe the degree to which it feels like an alternate universe. It's like an alternate mm-hmm. insulated world. And I remember having this realization in high school, like, I don't know anyone who's not a Christian. I don't know anyone who isn't just like me. And mm-hmm. it's kind right. of hard to describe to people who've never experienced that just how insular it is. Uh, but mm-hmm. speaking of that world, you you have a really interesting term. I believe it came from Beowulf. Let me... You might need to cor- yeah. you might need to correct me on the pronunciation. It is Mirkstapa. Mirkstapa is that it? Well, you're not talking to an old English scholar, here, so <laughs> okay. I'm gonna go with that. We'll go with Mirkstapa, yeah. and the the meaning is a border walker. Um, so you describe yourself in the book as a border walker. How? What does that mean to you? And and how did that start to emerge, this identity as a border walker in your religious process? Yeah. Yeah. The term in the book is border is border stalker. I don't know if you prefer border walker. Oh, or, I, or in not, my notes, but, um, it's it, in my notes. I have border walker, but border stalker is is uh, I probably just wrote it down wrong. Yeah, it, it could be also that I have both in the book. I tend to sure. use stalker more. Border walker might actually be better i don't i don't know i've had people you know because the name of my Substack is actually border stalkers and i've had people say you know it sounds a little creepy <laughs> or something um, I, as a as I as the know. satanist in the room i am here for the creepy i <laughs> i love let's go with border stalker for the rest of this conversation <laughs> okay we'll do it so yeah i mean it comes from a, a book by a painter and an author named mako fujimura he's the one who kind of dredged it up from Beowulf and 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 used it in a book that he wrote called Culture Care. And I think what really caught my attention at first was just the contrast of that term to culture war. You know, if there's if there I don't 
I, I haven't said this in the, in the interviews I've done so far, but it really is coming to me right now. Culture war has probably been one of the things that's bothered me most about evangelicalism from a very young age, like very young. Uh, I sensed probably as early as high school when I was getting my first exposure to any kind of political you know, information at all. And I would say probably my first sort of archetype for this would be Rush Limbaugh. And I was so turned off as a high schooler, even though I knew nothing about politics other than that abortion was bad and Democrats were, were as a result, evil. You know, that's all I really knew of politics. But even though that was the extent of my political uh, awareness, I just knew that uh, I did not like the kind of politics that I saw in the Rush Limbaugh approach, because it was all about what he was against. And there was nothing that I could tell that he was for. Now, of course, he or his supporters would say, well, I can tell you 10 things he was for. But my point is, he didn't talk about those things primarily. He talked primarily about the things he was against. And um, so that whole attitude and environment of culture war, you know, I think the Christian coalition, the moral majority, the religious right, were were huge components of the culture war and so that stance towards others has always rubbed me wrong just instinctively and uh as i read mako's book um that's when i really i don't know exactly when but that's when i really began to embrace that term because it just struck me that that's the way i've been living my life for a pretty long time i never felt I never felt entirely at home in the church uh, that I grew up in, even though I was pretty in the fold for a long time. Um, and then in college became an absolute zealot throughout all those periods, the, the, the ups and downs, I was never all in because I just, I just couldn't get away from the part of my brain that wanted to ask questions and understand um and ask the question why and so uh the the term basically means you're not at home in any one group you feel somewhat alienated kind of anywhere you are um and that can be taken as you know a curse or a blessing and um it is a bit of both i think but uh you know the the good thing is that a border stalker can move between different groups can become fluent in their languages and because they are alienated, uh, it forces them to, I think, try to reduce the polarization between these groups in a weird way. Yeah, I think a fantastic example of a border stalker is my friend John Moorhead, who's been on the show multiple times. And he he is an evangelical uh, like you. He's he's still a Christian believer, but he he, he works in multi-faith engagement and really works with getting people in a room together who who are generally who generally other otherize and demonize each other and figure mm-hmm. out how to exist in that liminal space and yeah you know i think that existing in liminal spaces is often derided yeah. as wishy-washy or as fence sitting mm-hmm. i cannot emphasize enough how how much into how how much of 
how do I say this? How muscular of an intellect and emotional intelligence you have to have in order to exist in those liminal spaces with people who are very different from you. And it look, you know, they're, you know, my people on the left, there is there is this contingent of people online who have zero tolerance for that and really see it as a mm. as as a weakness. And I think mm-hmm. that if if what you are describing is done well, it is anything but it is one of the hardest things and one of the most refining things I've ever done in my life. Um there, there's a, uh, there's a professor at the University of Indiana who I became aware of through Andrew Sullivan first through his Substack and then he had him on his podcast very recently. His name is Aurelian. Uh, he's from Eastern Europe, I believe. So his last name is hard to pronounce. I haven't, I haven't learned this one either. Krautu, it's C A C R A I T U, I believe. I saw that one. Um, I haven't listened to it yet, but yeah, yeah. So I've got that book. I've read parts of it. And the base, the book is called Faces of Moderation. He's written a couple others and he's working on another one. Mm. And I think one of the core arguments he's making is exactly what you just said, which is that people think of moderation um, as weak and, uh, you know, they, they cast scorn on it. But it actually and it, I think the key word is weak. But the, the case he's making is that it actually requires incredible strength and courage and uh you know, put whatever other words you want to into that bucket. But that's the basic framework that he's trying to, uh, you know, grapple with. Yeah. And I, I also, you know, just have to acknowledge, I know that for people who are not sold on this idea, we probably sound very self-serving talking about this. hundred like, percent. <laughs> like, right. oh, it is the most heroic thing you could do. Uh I acknowledge how self-serving this sounds, but I also believe that it is one of the hardest, most challenging things that I have done. Mm. So, well, so, and, you know, you don't have you don't have to say it's heroic, but you can say you can you know, it's there's different ways to talk about it. You can you can definitely argue without sounding too self-aggrandizing that you can do this work. Yes. And still and still be fierce. Yeah. And uh, and you can do this work in this way and still be strong. Um, so, you know, maybe that's a little less sounding like we're so great and we're just making a case for this. You don't have to leave behind your commitment yes. to really being a strong advocate uh, to, to if you want to do this, this this way. Yeah, definitely agree. So what changed for you in your relationship to evangelicalism? What was it that, because your the subtitle of your book is Inside the Evangelical Movement That Failed a Generation. What was it that made that switch? Because you were really, it seems like, part of the fold for a very long time. Yeah, I mean, it was both gradual and then sped up and um, many steps along the way. But there's no question that uh, the rise of Donald Trump played a, a, a role in, I think, you know, just raising the level of alarm and um, bringing things to the fore that maybe would have stayed more submerged otherwise. But, you know, by by the time 2015 rolled around, um, I was a long way from where I had been 10 to 15 years earlier. But I also was mostly focused on career and family. And in a lot of ways, Donald Trump has really reinvigorated my my faith because I saw the faith I had been raised with being abused and exposed in a lot of ways. 
And it, it forced a choice of if I was going to critique it, would I do so from a place of saying, I don't even believe in any of that anymore? Or was I going to examine whether I could still uh, believe it and practice it? And that's the direction I've gone. Mm. So yeah, mm. over time and then a bit more, not all at once, but sped up. Yeah. What does your faith look like now? Such a, it's like trying to, trying to catch uh, air or sand, um, <laughs> trying to define faith or, or even say what it looks like. I think though that it does look like more of an emphasis on how you live your life and much less so on what you, what beliefs you express adherence to. I, I don't, I wouldn't say that I think that theology or, you know, beliefs or teachings are irrelevant at all. I don't believe that. But, you know, those those are to some degree, they can, they can shape our actions. But at the end of the day, if, if, I, if I believe that there's an ultimate reality in the form of a divinity and that there is an afterlife, which most days I believe, some days I believe, um, other days I <clears throat> have a harder time believing, but if I believe those things, uh, it, it you know from and from what I have seen of the teachings in the Bible and learned over many years, I don't I don't see in the teachings of Christianity a faith that says if you die and then there is some sort of afterlife, you're going to the bad place or excuse me, <clears throat> you're not going to the good place because you said the wrong thing. I mean, I just doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. So mm. I think whether or not you're loving your neighbor. And those around you, uh, and I like your no assholes rule. I think that's a good one. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think the basic way you treat other people and, and whether or not you're seeking to live your life in a way that is embedded in systems of justice and mercy and compassion, rather than some kind of performative sense of uh, doing good, um, is probably the other big change. There, there is this strange way in which a lot of the religion I was raised in has a uh, a strange relationship with doing good. Um, I'm talking in pretty vague terms here, but um, but I haven't fully thought it through. I have fully I have thought a lot about just embedding my life and my choices and my daily routines in a in a more just fashion. And I think that that aligns with the way that I think of faith and character as more built through habits and routine than I do through some spectacular moment in time, which then changes you forever. Um, and I think that that difference in paradigms is kind of what I'm getting at here. Mm. Yeah. It sounds like what you have embraced is orthopraxy over orthodoxy in a way, right? Practice how we treat, how we treat our neighbor versus correct Christian belief, which is, of course, an obsession through Christian history. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it, it tends to be a method of, I think, trying to control others usually. Yeah, definitely. No. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm a non-theist, I'm an atheist and, but I'm, I'm just not interested in trying to get other people to believe or not believe the way I do. Mm -hmm. What I'm very interested in is helping other people be better people. And so what I want is for Christians to be better Christians. I want 
Hindus to be better Hindus, Muslims to be better Muslims, et cetera, et cetera, to, to really, yeah. and, and yeah. because to me, that's what ultimately matters. And I think religion is here to stay. And I think, I think spiritual right. belief is here to stay. And so to me, that's, that's not the point. The point is how we treat our neighbor. That's where I am with that. In, in your book, at the very beginning, you talk, you have this really interesting sor- sor- short section about the voice of God, hearing the voice of God. Um, mm, yeah. What, when you feel like you're hearing the voice of God, what is that like? That was an interesting moment in the writing process when I actually wrote those words. Because I just sat down one day and I was, it was fairly late, I think, in the whole process. Um, you know, it's a couple hundred words of just sort of riffing on what it, what is it that makes life worth living? And what are the moments uh, that get us through when everything feels a little meaningless or a lot meaningless um, or hopeless uh, or dark? And as I tried to sketch out the moments in life when I feel like there is a purpose or there is something larger than myself, you know, that's, that's when I, I was kind of describing those moments. And then I got to the end of that and I would say, you know, describing it as the voice of God is in some ways a metaphor or a form of poetry. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm trying to describe the ineffable. And do I know for a fact that each of those moments represents a deity who con- who controls things or created reality uh, speaking directly to me? I don't know that, but I also think that that is part of faith, which is striving towards something that we don't know for sure. Not in a way that counts everything as, as true, but is really striving to both understand and submit to the mystery of uh of these ultimate questions yeah i thank you for sharing that i i feel like i approach that myself in my own way where i'm a meditator and in my daily meditation practice i have had experiences of the ineffable and i yeah and i there are times when i actually struggle with the place of religious language like the word god when it's like culturally the word god feels like the only appropriate word to use in that setting because it's it has like that whole weight of of history as the ineffable as the ground of being in the words of paul tillich like there there's that whole history and and yet I am a non-theist, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in the supernatural. I don't believe in a deity that has will, that has consciousness, that has, you know, that is that that uh performs miracles, etc. And yet I on a routine basis have an experience of the profound mystery of existence through meditation. Mm. And that's kind of a weird place to be because it makes my it mm. makes my atheist friends uncomfortable, right? Because I, mm-hmm. I start using words that they feel like are semantic sins, like God and spirituality and mysticism and the numinous and all of that. And then I and then I can't follow my theist friends all the way to even a deism, to even an an impersonal God. And so no, it's it 
it sounds like what you're getting at is is a is a kind of similar discomfort or or a not discomfort but a a similar dilemma but from your perspective as a, as uh as a christian of um what does the what does the word god mean and how do i capture these experiences <laughs> because they human yep. nature is to experience is to experience self transcendence yeah i mean how could how could you have a a really honest pursuit or experience of life and the intersection with this question of of uh spirit you know uh, a spiritual realm or a realm we can't see or the question of god how could you interact with any of that and have it not be weird to some degree like weirdness is yes. <laughs> you know part of the equation it is like inevitable if you're going to pers- to, to to live your life with i think intellectual honesty like it just there's there's just weirdness baked in Yes. Um, and so I, I do believe, and belief itself is such an interesting word. I do believe that there is a force in the world that, that we call God that is gracious and caring. There's a, certainly a lot of evidence to the contrary. Uh, and, um, and certainly there's also a lot uh, that, leads me to lean in this direction from the way I was taught growing up. Um, but at the end of the day, you're weighing all of these different factors against, you know, other pieces of evidence, whether it's from personal experience or from things that you've read or thought or heard and have sort of worked through and you're weighing these things against each other. And, um, you know, I just have a lot of patience for people who are, who are really grappling with these things because I don't know, those are my people. I think I really appreciate anybody who's really, who's really doing that. Yeah, definitely. Same. And I mean, there are so many times, so I, I write a lot about meditation and a lot about spirituality and there are occasions when I will look back on what I write and, and, and my newsletter. And I'm just like, this makes me look insane. <laughs> and I know that it makes me look insane. And yet these are genuine spiritual experiences that I've had. Um, mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm mindful of your time. But in the last uh, little bit of time that we have together, do you have any questions for me? I do. I would just say I had one moment really like the, what you just described in, in putting it into the book. And it's this moment when I... In my experience, I talked to a evil spirit and had and and it like went away after I talked to it. And I don't know if that was, if I was imagining that or if it was real. I don't know. Again, that's part of what we have to acknowledge in these discussions of faith and spirituality. Um, but I put it in knowing that it would sound like super weird to a lot of people. Um, but I think it's really, really good that we acknowledge uh, the, these kinds of things as long as we hold them with an open hand. Um, my one of my questions for you is where you grew up. I grew up in Western North Carolina in the Asheville area. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a charismatic evangelical setting, uh, technically Presbyterian and Presbyterians are not known for, 
you know, embracing the gifts of the spirit and all of that. But it was a it was a like a, a form of Presbyterianism that was very much that very much evolved out of the uh, renewal movement in the 60s and 70s, out of the the Jesus movement, all of yeah. which you talk okay. about the history of all of which you cover in your book. So people who want to learn more about that can, uh, you know read your book to find out more. And my my father, you know, I I try really hard not to talk about my family. Uh my sister actually has been on the podcast and um she's a conservative Christian and we've had conversations. But other than oh, Eliz- wow. other than Elizabeth, my sister, I I try not to talk about my family uh on the show because they didn't consent to being talked about. However, I will say that my father runs an international Christian ministry that I grew up in. So I, wow. I grew up traveling all over the world with my dad. My mother is also a pastor of a small local church. So I mean, there it's it's unusual. Wow. It's it, they they were very theologically opposed to homosexuality, but very much in support of women in ministry. For example, um, mm. it's a family of ministers. I am a minister. I am following the grand family tradition of being a minister. I'm just doing so in my own unique way. Yeah. <laughs> so my other question is goes to your your original statement that you're a minister of Satan. Yes. When you say that, how what is your relationship in your own mind between that uh, that um, that label or that uh, status? Do you think of Satan? Uh, I think I think you already said you don't think of Satan as a literal being, but do you think of Satan as a a force for light yeah. and goodness? So, because I mean, you're obviously you're, you're interested in living your life in a way that is full of goodness, definitely. And I'm curious between the relationship here. So you know, sat- Satanism is a is a broad religious tradition that includes lots of different types of people right so there are some people like the the black norwegian black metal guys who called themselves satanists and burned down churches and then you have organizations you have churches like the satanic temple which are really committed to the pursuit of justice and noble actions and and self-refinement so the tradition that i'm in is really based in the literary tradition of romantic mm. Satanism, which finds its inspiration less in scripture and more in Paradise Lost, the Satan of Paradise Lost by John Milton. And kind of through the Enlightenment and then moving into the Romantic period, there was this, this literary tradition by people like Victor Hugo, who wrote Les Miserables, by people like Blake, Percy Shelley, Byron, later a writer named Anatole France, who wrote an incredibly moving book called Revolt of the Angels, where Satan came to represent free thought, the underdog, the unbowed will, the trespasser of boundaries, the the one who the unbowed will who fought for justice. And so it it isn't theistic. And I think that's the biggest hurdle that people need to to absorb is it's a story and it's it's a myth. It's a story that animates my life and it provides kind of a symbolic scaffold upon which I can live my life. I also say that fully acknowledging that the word Satan is an immediate shutdown for a ton of people 
And that's mm -hmm. also kind of the point because the outsider right. is always terrifying. There is no point at which the outsider mm -hmm. is not terrifying. And I follow, mm -hmm. I follow the archetype of the outsider because I am myself an outsider. I've, I am gay. And there's no point at which the outsider is not profoundly uncomfortable. And so when people, when people have a mm -hmm. really strong negative reaction to the word Satan, I'm like, I get it. I understand. Consider two things. First, that, that feeling that you have in response to the word Satan, that, that feeling of disgust, of revulsion, of fear, of whatever it might be, that is the same feeling that people have had to gay people, to Jewish people, to disabled people. It is that feeling, that feeling that you have right now. That is it. And the message of at least my Satanism is that that feeling misguides you. And we have to judge people on the basis of their actions and their principles and not on their arbitrary societal designation. And then the other thing that I encourage people to see is every religious tradition is weird, right? Every tradition has a weird thing. It's just a matter of how inoculated we are against it. So take the crucifixion. Whenever people say, well, you know, Satan is the symbol of ultimate evil. I'm like, for a lot of people, yes, that is true. Mm -hmm. It is also right. true that the crucifixion, that, that the cross is a symbol of horrific torture and execution, and that cannibalism is really gross and weird. And yet, when you step into the stream, into the imaginative stream of Christianity, suddenly it makes sense, and the crucifixion is a symbol of horrific torture, but it is also the pinnacle of God's love. And the an act of cannibalizing the body of Christ is suddenly the point of contact with the divine, at least in Catholicism. And yeah. so every religious movement has a weird thing that on the outside makes zero sense, be it Satan being the symbol of the uh, of uh, the unbowed will and a, and a virtuous figure, or a symbol of torture and uh, and cannibalism being uh, the icon of ultimate love makes zero sense from the outside. Instead, we have to step into the the stream itself, into the imaginative stream, and then it all makes sense. And you know, I've always been an outsider. Being gay and Christian was. I've always been marginalized, and so being marginalized for a religious identity isn't new to me. It, it it's a place where I've become un, it's a place where I've become comfortable. But what it enables me to do is to also say this is the cost of plurality and religious freedom is to confront mm -hmm. the outsider and those really mm -hmm. challenging feelings when you confront the outsider. So that yeah. is <laughs> that is uh, the short answer. Yeah, it's very helpful to hear that. And it is yet another um example for me of the importance of asking questions before uh rushing to judgment you're right about the way that the, the word satan makes people feel it made me feel that way a bit yeah but over and over i just have found from experience that you know waiting to hear somebody's explanation will usually clear away a lot of your fears definitely yeah um so you know uh, we could talk a lot more about that, probably a whole nother 
30 minutes, actually. Um, <laughs> For sure. Yeah, we clearly have a lot more to discuss. We clearly have a lot in common. Uh, you're welcome back anytime uh, if you'd like to continue the conversation or, uh, you know, we can we can chat via email or whatever. But for people who want to find your work, who are interested in your writing, where can they find you online? Yeah. So it's hard to know these days. Twitter <laughs> was kind of the easy shorthand in the past, but I, I'm not really sure what's happening to Twitter. Same. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm still there. Uh at J-O-N-W-A-R-D-1-1. Um, Substack, you know, I've been doing that weekly for a couple months now um, and all together for about a year. And that's just, you know, the Border Stalkers Substack is probably the easiest way to find that. And then for information on my book, it's probably easiest for people to go to johnwardwrites.org. That's J-O-N-W-A-R-D, writes, uh, org, And there's actually some photos and a little bit of background about my my book there as well. Beautiful. Yeah, everyone should go buy the book, especially I think it will resonate if you've had any interaction with the evangelical world. It is called Testimony Inside the Evangelical Movement That Failed a Generation. I am reading it right now, and it is excellent. All right. John Ward, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for uh, being willing to talk to an entire den of degenerate heathens. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Stephen, for the kind words about the book. It's been really nice talking to you. I enjoyed it. Same. Well, that is it for this show. The music is by Eleven D Seven. The theme song is Wild. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. This show is written and produced by me, Stephen Bradford Long, and it is made possible by my patrons at patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. And as always, hail Satan, and thanks for listening. Thanks.